right? So if you were walking on the road and you saw a genuine monster, like, I mean, genuine monster, like creature from the Black Lagoon or something like that, uh, how would you respond? Would you pass, would you, would you kind of simply pass by him, simply nudging off to one side on the footpath? Would you casually walk to the other side of the street and go about your way? Or would you run as hard as you can away from him uh, in the direction that would put the most distance between the two of you? And I think that the answer is very obvious. It's the last one. If we encounter a true monster that could threaten our very life, we know that we should not linger uh, to observe it. We should not flirt with it or investigate it and should not see how close we can get to it without getting hurt. We must flee from it and so put space between us and it, as much space as we can. And although that is completely obvious in that example to every sane person in regard to genuine monsters, Christians more often struggle with that principle when it comes to our sin. Even when we have the best intentions, it can sometimes be harder for us to commit to that distance from our temptations. There's an inclination to to hover near what tempts us and to, to rationalize why we ought to be able to skirt as close to sin as we can without really sinning precisely because he knows that sinners have that tendency and because he saw the Corinthians working exactly along those lines, Paul wrote that they should flee from idolatry. The the command to flee from sin is much stronger than simply avoiding sin. We should not be content to sit at the same lunch table with what set, with what tempts us. We should not meet temptation for coffee. We should not entertain even the faintest affection for our sin, but should flee temptation and wage war on that which leads us from faithfulness to Christ. Now, 1 Corinthians is Paul's address to a host of pastoral issues. And in chapters 8 to 10, the issue was about whether Christians may eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. The argument was that since idols are merely statues rather than real deities, there's no harm in eating food offered to them, right? Uh, there was, though, a, in that, a twofold issue, namely that the pagan temples themselves hosted meals around these sacrifices, but also then separately sold leftover meat in the local markets. Although Paul acknowledged the theological point that these idols are not truly gods, he still cautioned them that the application of our theology must be conditioned by love for our brothers and sisters and by our personal concern to avoid temptation. Chapter 10, he has outlined how some people in Israel often succumbed to the temptation of idolatry, which means that we must be careful not to do anything that may provoke our fellow church members to sin. We don't want to be the stumbling block that causes them to fall. In verses 14 to 22, 
Paul's exhortation is that God's people should distance ourselves from whatever brings us into fellowship with ungodly things. And so the main point is that communion with God means that we must not fellowship with sin. Communion with God means that we must not fellowship with sin. Now, our first point is joined with Christ. Joined with Christ. So we thought last time about the list of examples in verses 1 to 13 uh, concerning how Israel had often been drawn to, or not last week, sorry, the last time we were in 1 Corinthians. Uh, these examples concern how Israel had often been drawn toward idolatry, which highlighted how being within God's people does not fully protect us, protect us from the possibility of sin. Uh, and Paul drew the inference here that Christians must flee from idolatry. So as we come to verse 14, if you look there, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So as we look at that, we remember the, the basic question that I've given you now that you'll, you'll remember about interpreting scripture. Uh, when we come to a verse like this, we ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. And so then, as this section begins, Paul drove at what Christians need to do in light of, as an inference from, the long history of God's people drifting toward idolatry. And the admonition is to flee from idolatry. And in order to make his point, Paul highlighted the significance of the Lord's Supper for how to think about eating food offered to idols. And so whereas verses 1 to 13 ground Paul's exhortation uh, to flee from idolatry from old using Old Testament examples, verses 16 to 22 ground that ex- same exhortation from New Testament practice. Old Testament examples, New Testament practice, grounding the same point. Now, the major payoff of Paul's appeal to the, the New Testament practice is to emphasize a twofold unity. Okay, so a twofold unity. There is a unity with Christ in the supper and a unity within the church through the supper. Okay, so for now, at this point, we are going to reflect upon that unity with Christ. So look at verse 16. I mean, in verse 15, he basically just says, I'm treating you like a rational person. Uh, so consider what I'm about to say. Then he moves into verse 16. Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So uh, as we come to think about the Lord's Supper, and we have some some pretty striking language here, we need to realize that different traditions, theological traditions, have explained the Lord's Supper in various ways. Baptists and generic evangelicals have tended to highlight the Supper as a bare or a mere memorial uh, to the extent of excluding anything besides our action of remembrance. Now, in that case, the supper becomes our work of remembering Christ uh, rather than a means of grace that God provides for us to provide Christ and his benefits to us. Now, although the supper is a memorial, we do it in remembrance of Christ, uh, it is more than a memorial. It is 
as this verse tells us, a genuine participation in Christ's blood and body. We couldn't say that if it's a bare memorial. It is a participation. But on the other extreme, as most of us are going to know, and, and probably more of us have this as our concern, Roman Catholicism has claimed that the bread and wine physically become, literally is not at question, right? So, so the question is not, does, does the supper literally provide Christ's body and blood? The Reformed affirm that, actually. The question is, does it physically provide Christ's body and blood? Roman Catholicism says bread and wine physically become Christ's body and blood. And the problem with this view is that it does not recognize that it is, as this text shows us, this text shows us it is not the material of bread and wine that grants Christ to us, but it is the celebration of the sacramental meal, right? It is the fact that we're blessing the cup and breaking the bread. There is an emphasis on the elements that we, together, that we bless and that we break, not simply magic that is supposedly worked by a priest. There's a, a plurality that has to be the case for us to participate in Christ. Rather than, so the truth is then that the celebration of the meal brings us into fellowship with Christ and his, his body. Through, through the blessed wine and the broken bread, we partake of Christ. This meal is participation in Christ's body and blood. We know, right, from John 6, that we are meant to eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood. But, but that passage, which is not about the supper, it's not, uh, clarifies that we partake of Christ's body and his blood by faith. That that's how you eat and drink Christ. Is through your faith. So as we gather around the Lord's table, when we can, it is an activity by which we partake again of Christ by faith. We receive the same things that we receive by faith in the supper, and we participate in it together. So the point is that the supper manifests how we are joined to Christ. The supper is a participation in Christ. So, as we come to this, that, that meal, we participate in Christ whom we worship. That's, that's the key thing to circle. As we come to that meal, we participate in Christ whom we worship. And that's going to help you see why this is an important argument. But that brings us to our second point, joined with the church. So, there's the twofold unity, right? That a unity with Christ, which we've seen in the first point, and now the second half of that joined with the church. And the supper not only manifests how we are joined with Christ, it manifests how we are joined with the church. And in verse 17, Paul states that unity once, he states the unity once with the reason for it twice. Okay, so he, it's a, it's a sandwich. Uh, the reason first, followed by by the statement, followed by the reason again. So because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For or because 
we all partake of one bread. So you've got the reason because there's one bread and because we all partake of one bread, we who are many are one body. So the bread, since it is one loaf from which we all eat, is the source of the church's unity and supper. I think that's fascinating, actually, that Paul places the church's unity in the bread. Uh, it's not simply the, the meal holistically. The church's unity is placed in eating from this bread. Now, I don't actually know what to make of it more than that, but I think it's something that's fascinating to know. Uh, and it's something of significance that, you know, if we were to think about the Lord's Supper more theologically at another time, uh, we would trace out. But for now, we can just note that uh, the bread is marking the church's unity and that, so the church's unity shows us how our union with Christ is not simply individual. Now, certainly you are personally joined to Christ by faith. I'm not questioning that. But it's not just that. If you want to participate in Christ's blood and body for forgiveness and for everlasting life, you have to participate in the church. Because one of the things that is granting you participation in Christ is also making you participate in the church. So there is no option. The same activities that join us to Christ join us to one another. And Paul illustrates in verse 18 that the same was true for national Israel. They sacrificed animals and joined together by eating the meat that was sacrificed. So the key issue there was, again, eating the, the sacrificial meal together. Just we've seen that the meal, the eating of the sacramental meal uh, in the Lord's Supper joins us to the one whom we worship in that meal. For Israel, you know, who received the commandments to do these things from God uh, until they were fulfilled in Christ, the key issue was that they ate sacrificial meals together. And so were joined to the true God whom they worshiped, according to the revelation they had in their time. Now, the Lord's Supper is not itself a sacrifice, uh, as if as if we're claiming that we sacrifice Christ again when we partake of the supper. That's not the case. That is what Rome claims that it does. So the meal is not itself a sacrifice, but but it is based on Christ's sacrifice. And so we do still call it a sacrificial meal. That sacrificial meal joins us to God and to one another. So it's based on Christ's once and for all sacrifice that is unrepeatable. Christ died on the cross, was buried, was raised, is in heaven now interceding for us. And we have a meal that is based on his sacrifice. Uh, and because of that sacrificial meal, uh, when we partake of it, it joins us again to God and to one another as the church. And Paul is pointing out in verse 18, so was the same in Israel. And then the big payoff, 
right? These are these are things that everybody's accepted, and that doesn't seem uh, controversial to the Corinthians as they read these things. And, but then Paul's big payoff is, so the Christian sacrificial meal joins us to the one whom we worship. The Israelite sacrificial meal joins them to the one who joined them to the one whom they worshiped uh, before it was fulfilled in Christ. And then the big payoff is so the same with the sacrificial meals in pagan temples. They join the people who participate to the one whom they worship. Paul admitted in verses 19 to 21 that his point was not that the idols are real gods. But instead, that these offerings were in reality made to demons or you know, devilish entities. Since eating a religious sacrificial meal makes us participants with those who eat with us and with the object of worship and the sacrifice, okay, then whenever we partake in these meals, we are joined with those who are eating and with whatever the object of worship is. And so it is incompatible to be part of a, of the church and part of the meals that took place in the temples. Yeah, the, the thing about this is, and, and the reason why I, I decided we needed to read the, the whole chapter, is we see in verses 23 to 30, that the problem with, with this issue was not the meat itself. It, it wasn't the food. The, the issue wasn't the food, which is to some degree, you know, he said, if you don't know at somebody's house, eat it. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about finding, finding out. And he's, so he's making a concession to those who want to eat, uh, to some degree, a concession to those who want to eat this meat offered to idols. The problem, the, the real, true, genuine problem is taking part in these meals that as, as sacrificial meals, if you get the meat that, you know, is sort of sold later, that's not the sacrificial meal. But to take part in these meals joins them to the objects of worship. And that is why you cannot properly share in the church and then participate in these pagan feasts. No, people are kind of draw it together. People are essentially drawn into the groups to which they belong by the table fellowship that they share. So God's people are not supposed to have table fellowship with other gods or demons or whatever. We have our fellowship with God and we disconnect ourselves from whatever may make us participants with anything else. And to be joined to the church, which is what we're considering at this point, right? And coming to a close, to be joined to the church is to renounce allegiance to anything else that formerly held our affection. Whatever idols may grip our hearts, to be joined to the church is to become part of a different fellowship. And so that's why we need to think about in our last point how we need to be justly aware. Justly aware. Paul closed this section of 14 to 22 with a, uh, so he's got an exhortation throughout this section and he comes to the close with a twofold question in verse 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
And the first question shows what is at stake in joining ourselves to fellowship uh, of religious practices other than in the church. For Christians to join into fellowship with demons is to risk provoking God to jealousy. We ought to know that it is, that is a terrible place to be because the second question points out we are not stronger than God. And we don't want to risk to be under his uh, actions of jealousy. And so that brings us back, if we if we're wanting to avoid that, brings us back to our initial exhortation. Flee from idolatry. Don't flirt with it. Don't try to get next to it. Don't try to ask, what's the limit of how far I can go? Idolatry is not just a wrinkly inconsistency in the Christian life. It is full upheaval of what we are supposed to be. Believer, you are joined to Christ. You partake of him by faith. And you participate in his benefits by the means of grace. And because we are joined to Christ, we must long to be far removed from those things that are in conflict with him. We want to run as far the other direction from that monster of sin as we can. Christ has bought us with his blood. And so we give ourselves to him. And so we must be justly aware of our union with Christ and what that means. It means whatever our temptation is, whatever our inclination towards sin, we want to be distanced from it as far as we might be able. There is infinite number of applications here. There is no use in me making the list of temptations. You know your temptation. Flee it. Run. We are joined to Christ, and we are meant to be justly aware of our union with Christ, and that we are joined to his death, to his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, and his body that was broken to bear our curse. We must know that and be mindful of that. And so we flee idolatry, not running anywhere. We flee from idolatry because we are fleeing to Christ. Now let's turn to him now. Father God, we are thankful for Christ. We are thankful for his sacrifice that has paid for our transgression. We are thankful that he has purchased our lives by his life, that he lived perfectly and gave on the cross to redeem us. And we pray that knowing that we are guilty, but also having tasted his grace, that we would live in gratitude by fleeing from whatever idol may grip our hearts. We rarely are trapped by temptations for stone figurines as idols, but there are many idols in our lives, and we pray that you would help us to identify them and flee them, not to run anywhere, not to run endlessly from them, but to run to our beautiful Christ, who is our wonderful Savior. And so we pray in his name. Amen.